Tonight, our subject is uh, looking at what is going on in the world, um, and obviously the current events that many of us have been watching over this past year or so. We're almost at the one-year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, um, which would have been um, the 24th of February last year. And um, when we consider uh, what has been going on um, and the events that have been taking place, one of the things we really want to think about is Russia's role uh, from a biblical point of view. So there's, there's lots of news, there's lots of events going on, and as we watch what's going on in the world, you can certainly see the concern that many people have. In fact, we live in a time, if you just turn over to Luke chapter 21, if you've got your Bible in front of you, we live in a time that's similar to um, that time where the Lord gave the Olivet Prophecy. Now, this prophecy is about AD 70, but we see in this prophecy certain things that certainly remind us of the days in which we live and, and parallel them. Um, Jesus proclaims the state of affairs that was going on. And we read in, in Luke chapter 21, verse 25, that there would be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. And that word perplexity is the idea of serious anxiety, consternation, to be in doubt. And this is the idea. Men's hearts are failing them for fear. And this is the situation that's very similar to what we see today as we continue reading verse 26. Men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Now when he talks about the sun, the moon, and the stars there, um, he's not talking about the literal constellations. Um, constellations, it is constellation, but constellations. He's talking about, as you can pick up from the last part of verse 26, the powers of heaven being shaken. So this is the political heavens in the political earth that we're dealing with. Now when we think about that, we certainly see that today. In fact, this was um, an article that was um, just the other day in the newspaper, and uh, it talked about the doomsday clock. So this was the 24th of January, uh, coming from Reuters, where it tells us that the doomsday clock is now set to 90 seconds to midnight. Well, what does all that mean? Well, the atomic clock, as it's called, um, is basically closer than ever before, according to these atomic scientists. And the, the reason they state is uh, the threats of nuclear war, climate, uh, disease, um, and all this kind of stuff which have been exacerbated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now it's interesting, as the article states, this clock was created in 1947 by a group of atomic scientists, which included Albert Einstein, the, those who worked on the Manhattan Project. And um, it was about 75 years ago, and they set it at that point in time, post-World War II, at seven minutes to midnight. Now, going back to 1991, it moved all the way back to 17 minutes to midnight, saying that, you know, things are actually in a pretty good state of affairs. Um, but today, it's the closest it's ever been, 90 seconds to midnight. So that's what the world is looking at. So these, these are not Bible prophecy students. These are atomic scientists looking at what's going on in the world and saying we are closer today than we have ever been um, to the, uh, the uh, what they call doomsday. Now, when we look at it from a biblical point of view, of course, um, we have the comfort of the scriptures. So if you come over to Habakkuk, when we look at these things and the world has is, is got its heart failing it for fear, as we can see in this, but in the, the prophecy of Habakkuk, um, we're given some assurances. 
And in chapter 2, um, we read here in verse 2, The Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain upon the tables, that he may run that readeth it. So this is the purpose of God giving a prophetic message. It's so that we can react and we can respond. It, it's plain, we can know what's going on, and it, it's a call to action. It's not about cool facts and dates and times and stuff like that. It's about a call to action. So he can run that reads this. And he goes on to say in verse 3, The vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Now that's an assurance that we have when it comes to the prophetic word. It might seem sometimes like things are going on and it's taking a long time. But the Bible has some very clear and precise prophecies about the, the latter days. Um, and we're encouraged here, don't get disheartened, don't give up. Um, God has spoken this, it is going to happen. And even though it, it takes a while sometimes, he says, uh, you know, wait for it because it surely will come and it will not tarry. And of course, one of the things that, that, that is called into that is this idea of being ready to run who read this message. So we also have the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 45, where he talks about a similar type of thing. So if you come over to Isaiah chapter 45, and we have here in Isaiah 45 uh, the facts that God gives us um, regarding the world in which we live. And we read here in verse 6, he says, Look, I'm telling you these things that you may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and there is none else. Right? So there's nobody else um, but God. Now, when you consider that and you look at this idea, um, he goes on to make a statement there. He says, look, I form the light and create the darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, Yahweh, do all these things. So God is in control of what's going on. So when we think back to coronavirus and we think back to all of the consternation that that caused and continues to cause, um, God is still in control. He creates the evil, but he also makes peace. And God is the doer of, of these things. Now, it's interesting, a writer about 175 years ago, a gentleman named John Thomas, wrote a book called Elpis Israel. And he was commenting on this and a, on a couple of other passages. And he makes a very interesting point here. He says, the introduction of sin into the world necessitated the constitution of things as they were laid in the beginning. If there had been no sin, there would have been no enmity between God and man, and consequently no antagonism by which to induce good out of evil. So he says, look, sin came into the world, and we have the Genesis record, and so consequently there was antagonism between God and man. There's, there's a distance between the two. And evil is what God uses to induce good. Um, so it's the idea, basically, of... of um, motivating people to think about their ways. So God is the author of evil, but he's not the author of sin, for evil is the punishment of sin. And we read here that the passage from Isaiah 57, I form the light and create the darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And then from Amos 3, verse 6, shall there be evil in the city and the Lord hath not done it? The evil then to which men is subjected is the Lord's doing. Now, 
So a lot of our humanistic world that we live in, that looks at God like Santa Claus, who you know gives every child a present, whether they're naughty or nice, um, this is just, you know, it rocks their socks. They, they can't accept this idea of a God who disciplines his creation uh, to try and bring about, out of the circumstances that we live in, good. But evil is the Lord's doing. So when we think of what's going on in the world, and specifically we could think of Ukraine, um, God has his hand in these things. And so John Thomas goes on to, to explain this, and he says uh, later on in, this, in the same booklet, he says, War, famine, pestilence, flood, earthquakes, disease, and death are the terrible evils which God inflicts upon mankind for their transgressions. Nations cannot go to war when they please, any more than they can shake the earth at their will and pleasure. Neither can they preserve peace when God proclaims war. Evil is the artillery which, with which he combats the enemies of his law and of his saints, and consequently there will be neither peace nor blessedness for the nations until sin is put down, his people avenged, and the truth and righteousness be established in the earth. So that's the overall purpose of God, is to bring about his kingdom where righteousness will be supreme in the earth. But until that point in time, there is going to be war, and there is going to be trouble. And man cannot change that. Just as we've seen in Turkey in this last week or so, an earthquake comes along, and there's nothing that man can do to stop that. He is not in control of those things. Well, the same is true, writes John Thomas, of war. Uh, men might want peace, but if God determines war is going to come, then that is going to be the end result. So we, of course, as, as a community and, and you know, the whole world really has been looking at this war that has been going on in Ukraine. We've almost reached that first anniversary and it's been the most horrific war that Europe has seen since World War II. In the cost of lives, it has been absolutely immense. And in fact, it's, it's overrun most um, wars that have taken place on the planet since um, World War II, as far as the amount of deaths uh, that it has caused. But this, especially in Europe, um, in what was considered a, um, you know, a civilized country. Now, there's been two wars that have been going on. There's the, the war on the ground, and then there's been this propaganda war that's also been going on in the media. And uh, it makes it difficult sometimes to kind of figure out exactly what's going on. So this is a chart comparing the Ukrainian forces to the Russian forces, um, how many troops they have. So active troops, the Ukraine has, according to this, 225 or 55, I should say, Russia, uh, 1 million and change. Um, some will put the Ukrainian amount at about 200 um, and so on. But and then there's the reserves, of course, and, and it looks like Russia's about three to one. Then they have the aircraft and the attack helicopters, the tanks, armored vehicles, and so on and so forth. And when you go to look at, you know, what has been the cost of this specific war, it's really tough to find an answer. A lot of people will tell you about Russia. Um, this is a Ukrainian source. They'll tell you that, you know, 126,000 Russians have died as of January 30th, um, over 3,000 tanks, and you can read through the stats there. Um, it goes on and on and on. But if you go and try and search what the losses have been for the Ukrainian side, it is nigh impossible to find any statistics. And you think, well, well how come? How come it's just all one-sided when it comes to this? In fact, 
there's just no Ukrainian statistics. Although, after much sleuthing, I actually found a site that told me a little bit about this. So um, this was uh, another site, and it listed here uh, the Russian losses. First of all, they put it at 129,000, um, you know, billions of dollars worth of cost, and all the different weapons and, and artillery and, and so on that had been destroyed. But you'll notice at the top there, it also has Ukrainian losses. And I thought, finally, somebody that can tell me the other side of the story. And their answer was simple. Heroes don't die. Um, there are no stats for Ukraine. Um, and so this is a propaganda war, uh, very much so, because it's being completely unreported as to you know what has been the loss of life for Ukraine as well. And so when you look at the media, it's extremely difficult to get a clear picture out of it. Um, there's obviously been a, a masses of killings that have taken place. Um, this is the killing fields of Ukraine. It was mentioned recently um, that basically um, it was one of the, uh, the American officials had given an estimate of, of how bad this was. So Russia claims so far only about 6,000 dead in Ukraine, 13. Um, and the U.S. estimates that there's about 100,000 um, Ukrainians and 100,000 Russians or thereabouts or 150,000. Um, the numbers go all over the place depending on who you talk to. If you talk to the Ukrainians, they've killed a quarter of a million Russians. If you talk to them about how many Ukrainians have died, they've said, well, just 13,000. So it's obviously just completely ridiculous, the numbers that are out there. Um, they don't mean anything. Um, but if we were to just sort of look at this and say, okay, um, if we were to take the, the the, the average, which is basically, let's say, that each side has lost about 150,000 soldiers, roughly. Um, and you look at the 200,000 fighting men that Ukraine boasted at the beginning of the war, that would leave them with about 50,000 regular soldiers. Um, with the Russians, uh, 900,000 or a million, whatever number you want to pick, that leaves them about 750,000 soldiers. But you can see, as this war of what they call attrition, this grinding war goes on, very quickly you run out of people in Ukraine because it's approximately right now if you were to take these statistics 15 Russian regular soldiers are available for every one Ukrainian regular soldier so when you look at that um, it's just a matter of time before Ukraine loses this war um, now there's there's many different reasons for um, the losses one of which has been uh, Russia has been using artillery um, extensively um, and so they fire off approximately depending on when between 20 and 60,000 rounds a day and Ukraine is able to do between about five and eight thousand rounds a day but most of what they're firing off is now down to mortars in smaller munitions um, so most of the Ukrainians have died because of massive shelling um, so it's a terrible terrible situation um, and when you look at this idea of you know these losses that you see all over the news, um, you would think that, you know, every single Russian tank ever made has been blown up in this war because that's all you'll see. You don't see Ukrainian tanks um, being taken out or anything like that if you, if you follow this at all. It's all Russia's uh, tanks that have been taken out. And there's this narrative in the West of basically Russia's losing this war. Um, Putin has cancer, he's got Parkinson's, he's got dementia, they're going to have a military coup and throw him out. Um, you know, uh, the Russian soldiers are being killed hand over fist. And this story just goes on and on and on and on and on. Um, and when you look at that, you say, well, you really have to kind of question 
the validity of the narrative that certainly in the West we're getting fed. Now, interestingly, um, this is from a source, uh, a man named um, General uh, Douglas McGregor. He's a PhD. He fought in the, the Iraq War. Um, and he talks about, you know, the population, the pre-war population of Ukraine is around 37 million, 37 and a half million. Um, some will put it into the 40s, but of actually people living in Ukraine. Now, of that 3,000 or 37 uh, million people, 2,000 actually have visas and work in either the UK or the European Union. Um, since the war started, there have been 10,000 refugees. It's taken the Western media a while to kind of catch up with this number. They now say it's around 8,000, um, but according to McGregor, it's around 10. Um, there are 4 million, or sorry, that's 10 million refugees, not 10,000. Um, under uh, Russia, there are 4 million uh, citizens living, most of which are Russian-speaking people in the Donbass, Luhansk, the eastern side of Ukraine. Um, and war casualties have been pegged by different sources, whether it's military or civilian, at around 600,000, which is a massive, massive number. Which leaves you a remaining population in Ukraine currently of about 20 million people. Now that's the same population um, that you would see in Mali or um, Romania, Chile, Zambia, and other countries like that. So when you pit that against the might of Russia, um, even if it's just down to a numerical superiority, um, it's a pretty grim situation. So the real picture is just not being portrayed by the world media, whether it's CBC here in Canada, Fox or CNN, pick your poison in the US, um, the BBC, if you go to you know, Britain, all of them are, are spinning the same narrative that Russia's almost done, it's all over but the fat lady singing, um, and it's just not uh, really a, 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 an accurate picture. So you really can't trust what man has to say, whether it's governments or whether it's the media. Um, so what do we do? How do we unravel this Gordian knot of what's really going on in the world? So for that, we turn to the Bible. So come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And this is where we have the comfort of the scriptures to know um, what is taking place and what is going to take place in the world. So 1 Thessalonians, and if we come into chapter 5, we read here um, in verse 1, he says, At the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now, what he talks about when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction is going to come upon them. And we've been living in relative peace and safety um, for the last somewhat 30 years, as we'll look at in just a moment. Um, but he goes on to say in verse 4, You, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You should not be caught by surprise is what's going on. You're the children of the light, the children of the day. We're not of the night nor of the darkness. Let us not therefore sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. So he points out that we have the word of prophecy as you read 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, um, so that we're not in darkness. We have been told these things before, and we know that the day of the Lord is upon us. Now, when you read that, again, like Haggai, it's a call to action. Let us watch and be sober. So our interest in what's going on in the world isn't just to have cool facts and deadlines and timelines and that kind of stuff. It's to be a call to action to us. So we want to spend a minute and look at, well, what does the Bible then say about Russia? The West is predicting its imminent demise and collapse. 
Um, but as we've seen, it's pretty tough to trust what's being told to us. Um, so when you look at the prophetic word, and we'd like to go to Ezekiel chapter 38, so just turn up Ezekiel chapter 38. Um, when we look at that, one thing is for sure. There's no spin doctors. You know, Ezekiel was not in the pocket of George Soros or whoever you might pick as somebody to manipulate the masses. Um, 2,600 years ago when he's writing, um, these events that we see today are, you know, so far off in the distant future, it's impossible for him to be kind of like trying to manipulate events that are going on. Um, but this is about the latter days, and these prophecies are divinely inspired. So this is God telling us beforehand, like we read in Isaiah, the things that are going to happen in the future so that we can be warned by these things. So in Ezekiel chapter 38, we read here about the latter days. And we read in verse 2, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, as the RSV and some others put it, of Meshach and of Tubal, and prophesy against him. Now, it's not just Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. If you cast your eyes down to verse 5, you've got Persia or Iran, Ethiopia, which would cover both Ethiopia and some of Sudan today, and Libya, which is Libya, um, with them, all of them with shield and helmet. And then further afield, we have Gomer and all his bands, the house of Tagarma of the north quarters, and all his bands, and many people with thee. So these are the nations that are associated with Russia in the latter days. And what is this all about? Well, if you just take a look at verse 14, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto Gog, Thus saith the Lord God, In that day when my people of Israel dwell safely, shall thou not know it? And he goes on to say, Thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. So they're going to come down into the land of Israel. Thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land, and it's going to be in the latter days. And I will bring thee against my land, and the nation shall know me, and I shall be sanctified in thee, O go before their eyes. So when you look at that, the latter days, what constitutes the latter days? Well, just cast your eyes back to verse 8. It's after many days, um, you're going to come into the land that's brought back from the sword and the people that is gathered out of many people, or that is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have always been uh, waste, but is brought forth out of the nations, and um, they will dwell safely, all of them. So that's the grand picture that we have, is that Russia, with a ram, with Libya, with Ethiopia, and those other nations that were mentioned that we'll just look at briefly in a moment, um, is going to come into the Middle East against Israel in the latter days. And we know that we're living in the latter days, which we'll look at a little bit further in just a moment as well. So this is the, the nation that we're, we just want to focus on for a moment. Gog of the land of Magog, and he's the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And so Rosh there is the word Rus in the Greek which literally is the idea of one who is lifted up, the chief or the head. And um, this is a proper name. And this Gog is the leader, the prince of Rosh, and he's of the land of Magog and, and Meshach and Tubal as well. So this is the area that we're kind of focused on. Um, now, again, we could spend a whole class looking at these, but just to pick a couple of highlights, Christadelphians for years have looked to concordances and lexicons and history books to find out, well, who are these people? I mean, we're not going to invent a story here, but we look to these things to see who they are. 
And Rosh is described in Ezekiel, or in, in um, Gesenius, who wrote a Hebrew Chaldee dictionary. He's around 1833 to 34. It was published. He says, this Rus, or Ross, is the proper name of a northern nation mentioned with Tubal and Meshach. Undoubtedly, he says, it's the Russians, who are mentioned by Byzantine writers of the 10th century under the name of Rus, dwelling in the north of the Taurus, and described by this Arabic writer of the same age as dwelling on the river Volga. So that's a historian, a, a lexicographer, um, who wrote this Greek Hebrew lexicon, or sorry, this Hebrew lexicon in 1833. Um, and then if we were to go further afield, one of my favorite sources, although I didn't like him so much in school, is this guy, Muhammad ibn Musa al-Khwarazim, um, known mostly to us as algebra, uh, literally algebra. He's the dude that invented algebra, hence why he wasn't my favorite person in school. Um, but this is, he wrote a, a, a geography as well, a historian who describes um, the people, and he talks about the Rus a tribe of Slavs who come from the furthest parts of the land of the Black Slaves. And he goes on to say, they reach the Caspian and take ships again and comes, uh, sometimes they bring their wares by camel um, to Baghdad and um, where there are some Slavonic eunuchs who interpret for them and so on and so forth. But you get the idea. He identifies the Rus as people who come from way up north, um, a Slavic tribe. Now, there's also a Russian historian himself, the, the Venerable Nestor, as they call him, Nestor Chronicles, written around 1056. Um, so this is long before, um, you know, a lot of history today. Um, but he writes this book and he says, look, after the flood, because people used to believe in the Bible back then, uh, the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth divided the earth. Japheth lands including the north side of the Black Sea uh, with rivers Danube, Nystr, Nipro, and Volga, which flows towards Shem's part of the earth. These lands contain numerous tribes such as the Rus. And he talks about the Slavs and the Rus are one people, for it is because of the Varangians uh, um, that the latter became known as the Rus, though originally they were termed Slavs. So again, um, Nestor's Chronicles, a Russian chronicler who basically says, hey, Russia is the Rus. They are the Rosh of the Bible. Um, a little bit later, uh, about 600 years later, is a guy named Bocart who wrote this uh, geography. And um, in it, he also says it's credible that from Rosh and Meshach, of whom Ezekiel speaks, descended the Russians and the Muscovites, nations of greatest celebrity in European Scythia. Rosh is the most ancient form under which history makes mention of the name Russia. So again, um, different sources will basically line these out. And there's lots of other nations that are involved in Ezekiel chapter 38. We're just going to overlay them here. Again, it would be a different class altogether. But the Rosh inhabit the area that you can see there. Magog, European Scythia between the River Don and the River Danube. Meshach to the north and Tubal north of it. Um, and Gomer in his tribes basically who started out in the area of Turkey and migrated across Europe ending up in France and Gaul as it was called and, uh, and Germany. So that's the area. Now if we were to talk about Magog, it basically sits in that area or what was called Scythia between the River Don and the River Danube. And um, that, of course, covers a fair amount of the Ukraine, Belarus, um, Poland, Germany, um, Romania, and some of the other nations that are included in that, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, and right into Russia. Now, helpful to us, um, as some skeptics have kind of brushed all this aside, um, is the current leader of Russia, um, a guy named Vladimir Putin, as I'm sure you know, uh, who wrote on July 12th a letter 
And in that letter, he basically turns around and says, Russians and Ukrainians and Belarusians are all descendants of the ancient, ancient nation of Rus, uh, which was the largest state in Europe, bound together by one language, which we now refer to as Old Russian, and after the baptism of Rus, uh, the author Orthodox faith. So he said, this is the, the, the tie that binds us all together. Now, the area that he's referring to, uh, Kievian Rus, if we were to superimpose that over this map, would include, again, a good portion of, well, all of Ukraine, um, down into portions of Moldova, bordering on Poland, um, and certainly taking into account a good chunk of what we would call Russia today. So that's the area that the Bible talks about as being the nations that are going to confederate themselves together, and they're going to come down, and they're going to uh, attack the Middle East in the latter days. So when you take that information and you kind of say, well, what's been going on in the last little while, and I'm going to say last little while, meaning before 30 years ago, um, it actually looked pretty much like this was going to be the situation because at that point in time, there was the um, Soviet Union, the USSR, and it basically had engulfed many of the countries of uh, the, the Middle East or Asian, Northern Asian area there, Iran, Afghanistan, Iraq were all under their hegemony at one point in time. You had Eastern Europe, um, Ukraine, Poland, uh, Belarus, those nations that were part of the Iron Curtain and others that joined in with them. Um, of course, you had Vietnam and Cambodia, Korea, North Korea, Mongolia, Sudan, Libya, all of those nations were allied or under the direct control of um, the Soviet Union. But um, that was the 1980s. There is this little passage in Ezekiel chapter 38, which talks about a turning around. And it's verse 4, where we read, I will turn thee back. And then God says, I'm going to put hooks in thy jaws and bring thee forth. And we've talked about that, this in the past as well. Um, but there was, in 1989, um, a great change that took place in Europe. The Berlin Wall, as I'd grown up knowing it, fell down. Um, I've actually visited Checkpoint Charlie, um, except it's in Dayton, Ohio now, because they took it there. Um, and you can go visit at the Air Force Museum there and, and the Berlin Wall. Um, but all of this, this came down and the Soviet Union collapsed around that period of time. Beginning with Afghanistan in 1989, they had to pull out of there under Gorbachev. And, um, and then after that, it was just like a house of cards. The, uh, the Soviet Union would collapse, the Warsaw Pact countries would fall first of all, and then the Soviet Union itself in 1991, a couple of years later, would completely disintegrate, and all of its uh, client states would be disassociated with it for a period of time. And so that was kind of the situation. That was the way it was when I was a teenager, um, and into my, you know, when I first got married in 1992, that was the world. It was the Soviet Union had collapsed, and in fact, People were saying, well, you know, have we got it wrong on Russia? Aren't they like kind of cooked? And shouldn't we not do lectures on Russia anymore and not talk about this anymore? It's kind of embarrassing. But the thing is, like Haggai says in, in some of those other prophets, don't tarry, wait for it. This is what God has said. It doesn't matter in the interim what it's going to look like. This is the eventuality. And so it was about 10 years after uh, Yeltsin came to power, and he's the guy that dissolved the Soviet Union, um, that in 1991, um, or 1999, sorry, uh, he resigns on December 31st, and Putin becomes the prime minister, or the president, I should say, of Russia. 
I think he was prime minister first for a couple of weeks and then they made him president. Um, but this is the situation in, in people at the time. Who's this Putin guy? He was a former KGB member. Um, but it wasn't long before he revealed, you know, what his thoughts were on the situation. And this is what he wrote back in 2005, or actually it's what he said in address to the Kremlin. Above all, we should acknowledge that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a major geopolitical disaster of the century. As for the Russian nation, it became a genuine drama. Tens of millions of our co-citizens and co-patriots found themselves outside of Russian territory. So it was, as far as he was concerned, a disaster. And his role, as he saw it, was to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. He was going to pick up all the bits and pieces and try and weld them back together again. And this is what he started doing, specifically in, in the area of North Asia, with Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, um, and Iran and Iraq lately, Syria, and of course Afghanistan in the last little while. As the U.S. has pulled out of these areas post-Gulf War, post-Iraq, uh, post-Afghanistan war, Russia has been quickly filling that vacuum. So where we come to today is really, it's a time for the nations of the world to wake up and to realize that this kind of 30-year peace that they thought they had with Russia no longer being this big power that they need to worry about um, is over. It's, it's a done thing. And it's done, not because of Putin, not because of Yeltsin, not because of Biden or whatever you want to blame it on. It's done because this is what God has called. It's time for the nations to wake up. So come, if you would, to Joel chapter 3. The prophecy of Joel chapter 3, and we are told there about this situation. Behold, in those days and in that time, when I bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will bring, or I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, or the judgments of Yah. So that's the same thing we read about in Ezekiel 38. And I will plead with them there for my people, for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered amongst the nations and parted the land. So this is the time where God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring all the nations down into the Middle East, into the area of Judah and Jerusalem. And this is what he describes, if you look over the page to verse 14, this great conflagration that's going to come. And you, you see them there in verse 9, proclaim you this among the Gentiles, prepare war, and so on. Well, if you come down to verse 14, as he describes this great host, he calls it a multitude, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Or if you look at your margin there, it's the idea of, of threshing. And uh, so that's the word karutz in the Hebrew. And uh, the idea of a sharp pointed thrashing instrument for the day of the Lord or the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of thrashing. And that is the same idea we have with Armageddon. So if you come in your Bible to Revelation chapter 16, we have John here or the Lord Jesus Christ is picking up the language of Joel. And he's talking about a gathering of nations. So in Revelation chapter 16, we read, He gathered them together to a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Now right there, when it says Hebrew tongue, that takes you back and makes you think of, it's got to be referring to something in the Old Testament. So if we were to take this word Armageddon and, and kind of look at it, it's what we call a transliteration. So it's taking a Hebrew phrase, or Hebrew sound, and it's transliterating it into the Greek. So it's basically, instead of translating it and saying this is what it's mean, it's using Greek words to make the same sounds. So when you've got Armageddon, it's actually a phrase, Adama, which is the Hebrew word for a heap of sheaves, 
uh, that have been set up for threshing. So we read about this with Boaz. Remember Boaz and Ruth, and it's the story where he's laying on the sheaves, and Ruth comes to his feet and basically asks him to redeem her. Um, that heap of sheaves that he's laying on is the word Adama. And then it's gay or guy, which is the word valley. And we know this because we have gay henna, the valley gay of the son of Hinnom. Um, and that's Joshua uh, 15, 8, and Numbers 21, 20. And then we have the word Don or Dan, which quite literally means judge or judgment. And we have it in Genesis 30 and verse 4. So when we put those phrases together, we have a heap of sheaves in a valley for judgment which is exactly what Joel chapter 3 is all about. So when we talk about Armageddon in Revelation, um, it's talking about a battle in the Middle East that Joel is also referring to. So we can go back to Joel then and understand that if we, we look back in the prophecy of Joel, that what we're seeing here is in fact the description of um, Armageddon, as it's called, in the New Testament. So if we go back to Joel chapter 3, in jumping in or back in at verse 9 so this is what the nations are told proclaim ye this among the gentiles prepare war wake up the mighty men let all the men of war draw near and let them come up so this is the idea of making a preparation which is the hebrew word kadesh which means to set apart or to make sacred to consecrate something um, to to hallow something so this is holy war uh, for argument's sake and they are to wake up the mighty men, which literally means to rouse up, to basically stir them from sleep. And it's used elsewhere in the Proverbs of the idea of waking out of, the, out of your bed. Um, and this is the concept. They're to wake up, and what are they supposed to do? Well, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. So it's a time of re-militarization. Right? So that's what we are to expect, according to the Bible, is before Armageddon, the nations are to wake up. They've been asleep for a while, and that's probably been the last 30 years or so. Um, and then they're, they're, they're exhorted here to wake up and to prepare war. Now, it's interesting um, that in the last little while, since the Ukrainian crisis began, um, this is a, uh, a, um, a little booklet that was put out. And... Um, it's this Baron Spithead is his name, interesting name. Um, and uh, he's a retired Navy admiral. And he makes the statement here that the Ukraine crisis should serve as a wake-up call to politicians and opinion formers. In response, the UK and NATO need to invest now in the necessary capabilities and strategies to meet the threats we face. So what he's saying is, hey, folks, wake up the mighty men of war. It's time to prepare. It's time to make munitions. That's ex exact policy in this policy manual called Ukraine, a wake-up call for the West on defense. And just to kind of see how that's been tracking, this is a, um, a, uh, a source was the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, and they are wringing their hands because this is from 1988 to 2021, and uh, the world military expenditure passed two trillion for the first time. So this, this trend of, you know, build your munitions, you can see the graph there. I don't need to point it out to you. It's going up. And it's now hit $2 trillion. The world is beginning this process of preparing for war. Now, there was a meeting that took place um, on Monday of this week, 
And, you know, sometimes we look at these things and people go, ah, you know, all things continue since they were, since the world began. Well, there was a meeting of NATO, and um, according to the uh, Secretary General, Hans Stoltenberg, on Monday, things are getting pretty dire. And I'll let, you, let him speak and, and uh, speak to this myself. Almost one year since the invasion, President Putin is not preparing for peace. He is launching new offensives. So we must continue to provide Ukraine with what it needs to win. It is clear that we are in a race of logistics. Key capabilities like ammunition, fuel and spare parts must reach Ukraine before Russia can seize the initiative on the battlefield. Speed will save lives. If Putin wins in Ukraine, the message to him and other authoritarian regimes is that force is rewarded. The war in Ukraine is consuming an enormous amount of ammunition and depleting Allied stockpiles. The current rate of Ukraine's ammunition expenditure is many times higher than our current rate of production. This puts our defense industries under strain. For example, the waiting time for large caliber ammunition has increased from 12 to 28 months. Orders placed today would only be delivered two and a half years later. So we need to ramp up production and invest in our production capacity. So when you listen to him, and he's telling you that the problem in Ukraine, and he mentions here the first Western leader to really come out and say it, if Russia wins. Now, we haven't heard that in just about any news media whatsoever, if Russia wins. So they're now saying it's possible that Russia's going to win. Why? Because they're going to run out of bullets, basically, is what it comes down to. I mean, the, the initial successes of Ukraine were pretty remarkable. They had some pretty sophisticated gear. There were these uh, Javelin anti-tank missiles that could be fired from two and a half kilometers away. Now, the Ukraine has basically uh, been supplied with a third of the U.S.'s stockpile of these. Um, and just so you know, they cost about $200,000 U.S. each. Um, for this missile, that's about the cost of a, um, uh, what do we figure it out to be? A, um, a very expensive car anyway, um, you could say. Now, a Ferrari, that was what it was, a 2022 Ferrari Roma. Now, it takes 32 months in order to get one of these from when you place your order until you get it. And um, only a thousand of them can be produced a year. Um, and based on the, the depletion of the U.S. stockpile, and, and the U.S. has stopped shipping these because they're saying, if it gets ugly and Russia turns on us, we need these missiles. Um, so we're not going to supply them anymore to Ukraine. So they're saying it's going to take approximately three years. And to rebuild their, their stockpile, take about six years to do this. Because nobody thought that this war would keep on going. Now, the other one is the Stinger missile. These are a little bit cheaper. Um, they're about $120,000 each. Um, so that's just a Porsche. Um, but basically, uh, Ukraine has given a third of its stockpile of these as well to the to, uh, or US has given a third of its stockpile to the Ukraine. Um, they can be fired from about five kilometers. They are anti-aircraft missiles. Um, and basically, only 30 of these can be, be produced every month. That's the problem. Now, the other problem is producing these is they take high-tech chips, um, which up until recently were made in China. 
Um, so that also creates a problem because you can't get the parts to make your missiles. Um, so this is the kind of situation we're seeing and the world is now beginning to get nervous because they thought it would all be done. Everybody was listening to the media and the media said Putin's done, he's lost. They pulled back for a while, it's all over with. But God has an entirely different story. And that is that Russia is going to be basically victorious over Europe. Now, one of the other points, and, and Alan was asking this question at the beginning of the class, well, when? When is Armageddon gonna take place? Well, Joel actually gives you the answer to that in chapter three. If we just go back and have a look there, he tells you when. And so if you look at Joel chapter three in verse one, it's in those days and in that time when I bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I'm gonna bring all nations down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which as we looked at was um, Armageddon. So when is the, the time period when it's possible to have Armageddon? Well, basically it's after 1967, where the Lord had said in Luke 21, they will fall by the edge of the sword and would be carried away captive into all nations. Jerusalem would be trodden down the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And that was fulfilled in 1967 when Jerusalem is no longer trodden down of the Gentiles and the temple fell into Jewish hands once again. And he says, I will bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. That's the West Bank, as it's called by the Western media, um, or Judea and Samaria, as the Jews would refer to it. This fell into Jewish hands before I was even born in 1967. That's the time period at which, until then, Armageddon couldn't really take place. But after that point in time, it could. So it's also not just a time for the world to wake up, but it's a time for us to wake up. I'd like to go back to Thessalonians and just consider those words one more time. Because we are living on the knife edge of the kingdom when things are about to get very, very dramatic very quickly. Um, when you look at what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. You know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. And that's how it's gonna to come to the world. They're all gonna be completely surprised because half of them believe that we evolved out of some primordial soup as little tadpoles and frogs and whatever else and that there is no God. And all of a sudden, things are gonna change. He goes on to say, you brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You're the children of light, the children of the day. You're not of the night nor the darkness. Let us not therefore sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. So this is why we, we would have a class like this to talk about Russia. Not because, hey, here's some cool facts, here's what history has to say, but because the Apostle Paul is telling us here that, look, we have these things written down so that we could see what's coming. And we can see what is coming. And what is coming is the Battle of Armageddon. And Peter also speaks about this. If we just turn over to um, Paul's letter to Peter, or not Paul's letter to Peter, Peter's letter, um, in second epistle of Peter, sorry, and um, in its verse uh, 19, we read here basically of a similar type of thing where he talks about the word of prophecy. We also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. So that's what prophecy's for, is a light that shines in a dark place. Now the world is pretty dark right now. People are pretty concerned about what's going on. 
Um, you see that conversations in the grocery store. You can even hear people talking about what is going on in the world. Well, we know what is going on. It's all been given to us in the scriptures before. And what Russia is on its path to do now is to put together the image empire. So come over to Daniel chapter 2. So Daniel is another prophecy talking about the latter days. Well, it's actually talking about the kingdom of men all the way through, but it ends in the latter days. And we read here about the assembling of the image empire. So in, in Daniel, we have here in um, chapter 2, and we're just going to come in. He's had this dream, and at verse 31, the interpretation of the dream is given. So Daniel tells the king, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image, the brightness, or the great image whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee. The form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, its legs of iron, and its feet part of iron and part of clay. And you saw until a stone was cut without hands, which smote the image on the feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Now he interprets this for the king as we continue reading there, verse 38, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, you are this head of gold. And after thee, another kingdom inferior to thee is gonna arise. And then a third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth and a fourth kingdom uh, as, as strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in peace and subdues all things. Um, and as iron breaks all these things, it shall break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of, of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. And so he, he talks about this and how there's going to be this mix of nations in the end, but this kingdom is going to be divided. Well, we know this, and in, in many people have, have gone through this prophecy and said, well, it's obvious. Babylon is the head of gold. That is the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom of Babylon. After Babylon, it's no great secret, came Cyrus and the Medes and the Persians. And so that's the Iranians of the of latter days, right? So Medo-Persia. And then following these came Alexander the Great and the Greeks, the Grecian Empire that would sweep across and take out the Persian Empire. And then, of course, we had the Romans, Julius Caesar, and uh, um, you know the, the different ones that would come down, Pompey, the general that would come down into the Middle East and take over Israel, or Judea as it was. Um, and finally, after Rome dissolves, we have the European states that we see today that are kind of a hodgepodge of nations that are somewhat tied together. The point that is made here by Daniel, though, is that these nations, in verse 35, were struck by the stone. And it's the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold are broken in pieces together. And then they become like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carries them away, and there's no place found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. So the end of the story is the kingdom of God that is coming there. Because in verse 44, he says, in the days of these kings, which is the toe kingdoms, the God of heaven is gonna set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. So it takes you right the way through world history from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and Europe. And it says that whole conglomeration is gonna be one piece at the end. And it's gonna be broken in pieces together. And in its place, the kingdom of God is going to come. Now that parallels with Joel 3. I'm going to gather all nations down and they're going to come to the valley of Jehoshaphat and then the Lord is going to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We read about that in Zechariah chapter 14 and the end result will be the establishment of the kingdom. 
And it's the same picture that we have in, in Revelation, all the nations gathered, um, and then basically uh, the power of man is put down, and in its place the kingdom of God is set up. And where we live in the middle of all this is this great time of preparation. Be thou prepared, we read in Ezekiel 38, thou and prepare thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. So this preparation that's taking place, it means to be set up or to stand firm, to be established, to appoint one as king, um, to direct or aim a weapon, to apply one's mind, to prepare, to make ready. And that's what Gesenius has to say. And then he basically goes on to tell him there that he is to be a guard unto them. And that idea of a guard is Mashir in the Hebrew, which is a prison, a station, or a watch. Um, in, there's two ways that this is used. One was where Joseph was put in the prison, um, a place of confinement. And the other one, the, the root word of this, is Nehemiah keeping the city safe. So it's, it's used in two ways, either to bring people under one's control and to, and to subject them, or to protect them. And Russia, of course, is doing both of those things. It's talking about the people in the eastern area of Ukraine and saying, we're going to protect these people. These are Russian citizens. Um, and then at the same time, it's putting on others under its yoke. So when we look at that and we think of, you know, the Bible students from years gone by, and this is again John Thomas, 175 years ago, he reflects on these prophecies we just talked about and says it's therefore the mission of the autocrat or the ruler of, uh, of the Russias to form the feet and set up the image before all the world in its excellent brightness and terrible form. Um, that all men subject to the kingdom of Babylon may worship the work of its, its creator's power. So when he looked at these passages, Daniel 2, Ezekiel 38, Joel, Zechariah, Russia's role there, he says, is to bring all these nations back together again. In fact, he wrote a little booklet, and it was called Anatolia. Um, and this is one of those booklets with the 47, you know, sort of line-long title. Um, but it was Russia triumphant in Europe chained. Um, and that was written in 1868. That's what Bible students back then, hundreds of years ago, were looking for. That this is what the Bible says, this is what has to happen. And of course, as he goes on there, he says, look, it's, this is the role and this is the destiny. Europe's leaders are wrong, he says, in supposing an age of conquest is past forever and that they will succeed in establishing freedom and independence in Europe. So it's not going to happen. There has never been such an age of conquest as that which will soon open on the world. And he's referring to what's described in Daniel, Ezekiel, Thessalonians, and others. Um, the establishment of the European freedom and independence, uh, a war is going to be initiated that is settled in an overwhelming, or setting in of an overwhelming inundation that will submerge them under one of the most terrible and scorching despotisms ever that has ever wrought, uh, wrung the heart of nations. And so that is what the Bible has to say, and then what people hundreds of years ago have to say. Now, I could stand here and say that to you today, and you might say, well, that's kind of like reading the tea leaves after the fact. Look what Russia's doing. That's 175 years ago. And all he's doing is reading the Bible and saying, well, this is what Daniel says. This is what Ezekiel says, Joel, Zechariah. That's what is going to happen. And, and brothers and sisters and young people and friends, that's what is happening today. Regardless of how the media tries to spin things, we need to heed the warnings. Now, here's the United Nations Secretary General. Um, this is what he has to say. 
We have stated or started 2023 staring down the barrel of a confluence of chain challenges unlike any in our lifetimes. I fear the world is not sleepwalking into a wider war. I fear it is doing so with its eyes wide open. So it's, it's basically saying, look, we are walking into, this is the United Nations Secretary General saying, this is what's upon us. Now we can read our Bible and say, hey folks, this is what's upon us. But it's interesting when you get somebody like this basically saying the same thing. And the Russians are also saying something similar. This is um, Sergei Shogo, uh, who is the, uh, the leader of their forces. And he goes on to state such moves by NATO in sending weapons are actually drawing NATO countries into the conflict and can eventually lead to an unpredictable escalation. So Russia is saying, look, you guys keep sending your armaments to Ukraine. This thing is going to blow out of, of all proportion. And then you have um, the, uh, the general, Christopher Cavalli, who is basically what they call the saucer. I thought it was an interesting phrase, but it's the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. And this is January 9th, addressing the Swedish um, group. And he turns around and says, hard power is reality. Soft power is good and useful and necessary. And integrating deterrence, of course, relies on the elements of national power, economic, diplomatic, informative information, and so on. So sanctions and all this kind of stuff, that's all well and fine. But the great irreducible feature of warfare is hard power. And you have to be good at it, he says. If the other guy shows up with a tank, you better have a tank. There's no point in, in sort of, well, I'll sanction you, you know. Well, as that tank fires, it's not going to do you much good. Now, he goes on to make a statement. He says, the scale of this war is out of proportion with all of our recent thinking. But it's real, and we must contend with it. So he said, this is nothing like what we expected. Now, we could turn around as Bible students and say, it's actually exactly like what the Bible predicts, is that basically this is just going to get worse. And there may be ebbs and flows in what goes on. Russia is not exactly in a rush. Um, they're just taking their time, and they're, as they call it, it's a grinding war right now, hoping that these other guys are going to run out of munitions, and they're going to give up. And then they're just going to keep on rolling. Now, where does that stop? Uh, it might end up being, as a lot of commentators have started talking about, the end of NATO. Because nations like France and Germany and other places are like, yeah, we're not interested in having a full-on war with, with Russia, whereas America's like, go on, guys, get in there, you know. Um, they're quite willing to push other people forward, but the idea of sending American troops over to fight this war, not going to happen. So when you, when you look at that kind of thing, you could see NATO fall apart. It could just pull apart at the seams. Um, and then into that vacuum, you're going to see a whole bunch of different things take place. And that's, that's a possibility. We know eventually, of course, that there will be no NATO, because when you look at what takes place in the Bible, um, you have Europe allied with Russia. This is another writer, um, a, name, a guy named Keir Giles. He's a specialist with the British Chatham House, um, a think tank about strategic stuff in Europe. And he says, it is steadily grinding of Russia's uh, campaigns to try to prevent Ukraine from being able to function as a state that will decide whether or not Russia wins because Ukraine has to capitulate. It is the frontline states that recognize what's at stake. And they recognize that if Russia has n is not stopped in Ukraine, they're likely to be next. And that's why you see Poland and some of these other guys tossing tanks in there and, and basically quite happy to see as much as possible Ukraine stop the Russians. But it's just interesting that here's another person saying, if Russia's not stopped in Ukraine, who's next? And so we hear this narrative now coming up in the world around us. So when we think of these things, um, it really behoves us to, to 
sit back and say, or maybe sit up and say, well, well, what does this mean to us? Now come back to Revelation chapter 16 for a moment. Because we have in verse 14 these spirits of devils um, which are basically going out to the kings of the earth and the whole world, and we're not going to get into what they are, but these teachings and doctrines basically that are gathering uh, to the battle of the great day of God Almighty, all these nations, right? So the nations are being gathered in verse 14. There's forces at play doing this. And in verse 16, you actually have that battle of Armageddon. And sandwiched between those two verses, we have verse 15. And this is what the Lord says, the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So the nations are gathering and they're starting to, to pull together. That's what we've been looking at in Joel and Ezekiel, preparing war, waking up the mighty men. Well, while that's going on on one hand, Armageddon's going to eventually take place. We've already passed the marker of when, when Judah and Jerusalem basically are restored. And between that, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I come as a thief. So what does that matter? So he says, well, blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. It's all about a message to us to get our act together while we have chance. The prophets are crying out, this is where the world is going. Because we know the end result is going to be that that stone that we read of in Daniel 2, 44, um, or 34, was cut without hands. It smote the image on the feet, and it's going to grind that image to powder. It's going to become like chaff. There's going to be no place left for it. And it's going to become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. And it's the days of those kings um, when the God of heaven is going to set up this kingdom. That's what that stone becoming a mountain is. It's going to break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it's going to stand forever. And hail the day when it does that when all this wickedness and oppression of mankind is put down, and all this avarice and lust and desire and fighting and so on is going to be stopped by the Lord Jesus Christ, and the kingdom is going to come. Now, in all of that, I'd just like you to turn to a couple of passages to close our thoughts off. In 2 Peter 3, the challenge for us is this. It just seems like things keep on going on, right? It's like, well, you know, we've been coming here. I've been here for, I don't know, 1997, however year that is. You know, doing lectures on Russia and saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. And we can slide into this mindset that Second Peter 3, verse 3 says. And this can be us. Knowing this first, that in the last days, there's going to come scoffers walking after their own lust. Now, the idea of a scoffer there is somebody who mocks. And in our brains sometimes, we can do that. We can say, oh, I know, I know. You've been saying this forever. Um, but notice the phrasing here in verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming since the fathers fell asleep? All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now that's a mindset that we can get into. It's just going to keep going and going and going, and it's just going to continue on. Well, friends and brothers and sisters and young people, it's not going to continue. The Lord's given us all these prophecies so that we don't get taken as a thief in the night. It doesn't come upon us unawares, and we're not like, ooh, didn't see that coming. No, we should see it coming, and we should be preparing. That's the whole point of giving us the prophetic word. So the Lord in Revelation chapter 3, he says, look, I want into your lives, but it's your choice if you want me there or not. Revelation 3, verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. So there's the Lord banging on the door of our lives, saying, I want to come in. Will you open your life to me? And this is our daily lives. 
Will we get our Bibles out and do our Bible readings? Will we come to ecclesial activities, memorial meeting, where we can sup with him? Will we engage ourselves in the words of the book, recognizing like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we look for a city whose builder and maker is God, and our lot in life is not in this life right now. It's all going to go, and it's going to go very rapidly, as we can see from the prophetic word. So the Lord is asking us, open up your life to me. Open the door to me. Because there will come a day, if you come back to Luke 13, where this is going to be reversed. Where the door, if we haven't opened to him, is going to be shut. And we're the ones who are going to be knocking on that door. So in Luke chapter 13, and at verse 25, when once the master of the house is risen up and has shut the door, and you're standing without, and you're knocking at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, he shall answer and say unto you, I don't know who you are. How would I recognize you? I haven't seen you. You haven't been reading my word. You haven't been praying. You haven't been involved in these things. You have not put me above your chiefest joy. And that to us, to every single one of us, has to be the thing. Our jobs and our careers and our goals and, and whatever we set for ourselves, I can't wait. I mean, it starts off in high school. What am I going to do when I get to college or university or whatever it might be? And then when you're in university, it's like, ooh, what am I going to do when I get my first job? And then it's like, okay, well, once I got my first job, oh, now I'm going to look at, well, it used to be buying a house, but in Ontario, that's almost impossible now, but maybe buying a car or whatever. And then you kind of like go, and it just changes, right? That goal keeps on changing. But what it has to be for us is the Lord is coming and all of this is going to be scrubbed. It's not going to matter at all what education, job, position, home, car, anything that you can put your heart and desire into, it's all going to be gone. And the Lord's going to have come. And are we going to be inside or are we going to be outside knocking to come in? Because he says, there's, there's you know, I, I don't know you. If we haven't invited him into our lives now, he's going to say, I don't know you, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because it's too late. And how sad a day that would be that we would be left out. And so the exhortation to us, as we have it in, in Luke chapter 12 as well, let our loins be girded about and our lights burning. Get the word of God out. Take a look at what's going on and see with the light of Scripture. And you yourselves, like unto men that wait for the Lord, when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, we open to him immediately. It's an immediate, can't wait, this is the culmination of everything. And young people, sometimes we don't always feel that way. You know, we've got this I want to do and that I want to do. But the older you get, the more you realize it doesn't matter. You get that new car, and then it rusts away, and you know, it, it rots, and then you have to get another one. You know, and after a while, it's just like a money pit. You know, same thing with the house. The sink breaks, the toilet breaks. You know, it's just whatever. It just becomes one thing after the other. And the shine kind of goes away after a while. So what we need to be is people that when the Lord comes, we're not tied up in all these things. Immediately, we spring up with joy. We can't wait. This is the most important moment of our not lives. It's not a moment of fear and dread of shoulda, woulda, coulda, wish I had done this, wish I had been there. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, will find watching. Verily I say unto you, he will gird himself and make them to sit down at meat and will come forth and serve them. And so when you look at that, you think, you know, that's amazing. He stands now and he says to us, I'm, I'm at the door and I'm knocking. Open your life to me and I'll come in. 
and I'll suck with you now. And if you do that, when the kingdom comes, and, and he comes and, and basically knocks, and we open to him immediately, we're totally excited. We're not clearing, oh, I've got to get rid of this and this. It's already gone. It's, it's like we're ready to go. Blessed are those servants who, when the Lord comes, will find watching. What's he going to do? He's going to come, and he's going to gird himself and make them to sit down and meet and come forth and serve them. So when he comes, he's going to sit and eat with us in the kingdom of God. And all of the troubles of this life will be a thing of the past. So as we look out there in the world, we can see that Russia is preparing for Armageddon. It's going to keep on rolling. There may be offsets here and there. They might lose this little bit or that little bit. But the reality is, even the world is now realizing that Russia may win this war. And if they do, they're probably not going to stop. So where does that put us? Are we listening to the Lord knocking at the door? Are we opening to him every single day, getting him into our lives? Young people, you know, if mom and dad miss the readings, ask them, hey, can we do the readings? Because I want to be in the kingdom. You know, it's about us all engaging and saying, I want to be there with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when he does come, we jump up to our feet and we're ready to go for the most exciting adventure of our entire lives as the kingdom of God begins. everyone here and on Zoom as I, I see here. Uh, I'd like to thank our brother Jonathan for his class tonight. Uh, the plan of course should our Lord remain away is to meet here again next Wednesday at 730 and I have down that it would be brother Stephen Wilton speaking next week so it looks like I'm getting a thumbs up and his topic will be what does it mean that the Bible is inspired by God and that's next Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. here at the hall. Uh, and at this point, um, we're, we're going to close. I know that uh, Jonathan will be around for a while if those want to ask him a few questions. And I've asked our brother Martin Webster to close our class tonight. Almighty God, who has created the heavens and the earth for the glory of your name. We have been blessed this evening to have presented to us the power of the gospel, which can give us comfort in a world that is so challenging, so horrifyingly challenging for us to understand and see. Its turmoil, its sadness, its corruption, and the wars among the nations that are afflicting so many millions of people. We know your purpose will move forward steadily, and our fervent prayer is that we will be ready for the coming of the Lord when he comes, that our hearts and minds will be wide open to receive the, the, the wondrous message of the gospel and that it will influence our lives so that when the Lord does come, we will be ready to respond to that call. Be with us tonight and bless us in all the things we do and help us to remember the things we've heard and then put these great points of scripture into our lives in a very practical way. As we give thanks now in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.